morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, and I hope that you do, I invite you to go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. So if you're familiar with the Bible uh, or not, uh, John is the fourth Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, there you will find it. And that's where we will be this morning, in the middle of John chapter 10. Over the last two weeks, we've been preaching on the theme of saving faith. And the aim of this sermon series has been to look at the scriptures to understand what exactly is saving faith. How do we get it? How do we know we have it? And how do we know it will last? And one of the primary drivers behind a sermon series like this uh, and why it's needed in the life of our church is to remind us that faith, if it is to be saving faith, has certain characteristics, certain features that distinguish it from not having it. In other words, if someone has saving faith, they will act a certain way, they will live a certain way, they will believe a certain way. This doesn't mean that people of saving faith will do everything perfect. Uh, we'll see some of that even in today's sermon. But it does mean that there are clear lines that need to be drawn. And that's important, that's massively important in our day and age, where everything in our culture, from the shows we watch, to the conversations we have at work or with friends, to the nightly news programs, Everything in our culture is teaching us to be less exclusive, to be less clear, to be more open, to be more tolerant. And my whole goal is to get us to see as a church community to see that saving faith leads to specific fruits that can be seen and known. And we've looked at two of these fruits so far of saving faith. We looked at the relationship between faith and repentance in week one. And then last week we looked at faith and works. And this morning I want to focus our attention just for a few, few moments on faith and perseverance. Faith and perseverance. And I've been reminded that the last two weeks I've been preaching a little long. And I, I do repent and I apologize for that. Uh, so I've got my timer going at 35 minutes. So just, that just means buckle up because I've got to talk faster. If you've been paying attention over the last two weeks, you might be thinking to yourself, I can be a Christian if merely I repent enough and if I do enough good works. But what I want to put before you this morning is this question. Why are you a Christian? Have you ever thought about it? Why are you a Christian? Why have you believed the gospel? Why have other people not believed the gospel? Is it because you have repented? Why are you still a Christian? Is it because you have done enough good works? Why did all of you get out of bed this morning to come to a church to listen to a slightly overweight bald man talk about Jesus Christ? Why are you still believing the gospel? Is it just a momentary thing in your life? Did you experience a few moments of emotions and feelings that will pass in the next five years, five months, or five decades? How do you know that you won't wake up a few years from now, look back on this time in your life, and think to yourself, man, what a waste of time. What a waste of time. Well, these are some of the questions that the people around Jesus wrestled with. They struggled with understanding whether Jesus was just a man that could attract a crowd, do a few miracles, a few hand-waving gestures, or was he the real deal? Could he truly be the one the book of Genesis promised that God would send to crush the head of the evil one? Could he truly be the one who would restore fallen humanity back into the good graces of God Almighty? So look with me in the Gospel of John uh, chapter 10. Gospel of John, chapter 10. Look with me at verse 22. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, 
uh, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So in John chapter 10 here, we find Jesus walking around in the temple during a specific time, this time, this feast of dedication. It was a feast uh, that had been instituted for nearly 200 years. Its purpose was to gather together to commemorate and celebrate the purging of the temple after its pollution by Anarchus uh, Epiphanes. So you can imagine that, that, that there Jesus was walking around the temple and there lots of people from around uh, Israel had gathered into the temple. Lots of Jewish people began to gather in order to celebrate this feast. Perhaps they were sitting in the temple when all of a sudden they see this man who they've heard rumors about. They've heard uh, of this man uh, named Jesus and they're, they're wondering perhaps there he has an entourage with him. Maybe his 12 disciples were walking with him and they decide once and for all, you know what, let's ask this man who he is. And so you see in verse 24, the Jews gathered around and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. This is an important question. They wanted to know, are you the promised one? That's what Christ means, God's anointed one. Are you the one we've been taught to look for? From a young age, Jewish children reading the Old Testament scriptures would have been looking for the one to come. The one who would be like Adam, yet perfect. The one who would be a, a, a prophet like Moses, but better. The one who would come from David's line. A man of wisdom like Solomon. A man of strength like Samson. Are you the one to come, redeem, and restore mankind? This is also an important question for us. Because it's a question each of us must ask ourselves. All of humanity, all of humanity is looking for a savior. All of humanity. They might not say it in those words. They might not express it in that way or that phrase, but all of humanity, once you understand who God is and understand who the world, and understand the world he has made and understand how that good world has been corrupted by sin, then you begin to understand that what every drunkard is looking for at the bottom of a bottle, what every lover is looking for in another one-night stand, what every son is looking for in the approval and affirmation of a father, what every daughter is looking for in the caring touch of a mother, what every CEO is looking for in a new business venture, all of them ultimately is looking for a savior. Something that will fill the God-shaped hole in their hearts. Have you asked the question that these Jews are asking here? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one to come and restore and redeem all of humanity? It's important in the Gospel of John because it's a central question of the book. You see, John tells us at the end of the book the reason why he's written this. It's not like he wrote it and just wants us to kind of fumble around in the dark, be like, why did God, why did John take the time to write this for us? No, no, no. He tells us explicitly in the end of the book why he's taking the time to write the story of Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 31 says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He wants us to ask the question, is Jesus the Christ? And then from everything he's written in this gospel to come away with, to come away believing that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. So in the next few verses, we'll see uh, Jesus' answer in three parts. This is the outline of the sermon uh, for you type one folks, type A folks. Uh, Number one, Jesus' works prove who he is. Jesus' works prove who he is. Number two, Jesus' sheep know who he is. Jesus' sheep know who he is. And number three, Jesus keeps all who are his. Jesus keeps all who are his. So so point number one, Jesus' works prove who he is. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, 
and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So the Jews come, you can see them there in the temple, right, in your mind. You can see maybe it's uh, high noon, uh, and there they see Jesus and his entourage, and they're walking by, and so they ask him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus' answer is straightforward enough. He answers, he says, I told you, and you did not believe. This is interesting, because the way John says that the Jews are asking, it's almost as if they're placing blame at Jesus' feet for speaking in riddles, for speaking in parables, for speaking in a way that they could not grasp. In verse 24, they lay at Jesus' feet the charge, how long will you keep us in suspense? They view Jesus as this type of elusive teacher who's trying to keep his audience on the edge of their seat or, or hanging off a cliff. They charge him with not being clear and forthright about who he actually is. But how does Jesus answer? How does he respond He answers by telling them that the facts in their head is not enough to get them to the truth. He says, I told you. He said, I've already told you who I am. And this is true. Jesus isn't lying here. You see, in John chapter 5, verse 43, he said, I've come in my Father's name. In John chapter 6, verse 47, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 7, verse 38, he said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 8, 42, I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John 10, verse nine, this very chapter, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In verse 14 of this very chapter, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So Jesus has already told them who he was. He hasn't hidden it. He's worked miracles in front of them so that they would know who he is. And even though they had the knowledge and they had all the facts, it wasn't enough for them. He says, Jesus says, I told you and you do not believe. You see, this is what Jesus is after. He wants them to have faith in God and in his son, Jesus. He wants them to believe. The problem of the people was not that Jesus had somehow been unclear about who he was, but that they did not believe the things that Jesus had already said. This is a word for us because so many times in life uh, when hardship comes, when life smacks us in the face, when you lose a job, get a diagnosis that you didn't want, when you find your spouse has been cheating on you for years, we're tempted to no longer believe. We're tempted to find more facts, to look for more answers outside of what we've already been given. We think if we acquire enough facts, if we acquire enough information, if we acquire enough knowledge, then we will know. When in these moments, Jesus wants us to merely believe in him. Believe in the goodness of God. Believe that Jesus really has come to make all things new. And so Jesus says in verse 25 that the works he does, he does in the name of his Father, and that they bear witness about me. This is incredible because Jesus has been walking around doing miracles, turning water into wine, casting out demons, giving sight to the blind. In the very next chapter of John chapter 11, he will uh, raise Lazarus from the dead who'd been dead for three days. And right before Jesus raises this dead man, he, he, he says these words. He says he's going to raise the people, not for Lazarus' sake. He, said, he didn't say, I'm gonna raise Lazarus so Lazarus will come back to life. That wasn't the intention behind the miracle, but rather the intention behind the miracle is so that everyone standing around would believe that God the Father had sent God the Son, Jesus Christ. So why are you a Christian today? Simply put, because in reading and knowing of what Jesus has done, you have believed that he is the son of God. 
The flip side of this is that if you do not believe Jesus is the Son of God, well, you're not a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you believe Jesus was a good moral man, a good teacher perhaps, but would hesitate to say that he is God in the flesh, you would hesitate to say that he is divine, then listen, you're not a Christian. That's what John is trying to prove. That's what Jesus is saying to these Jewish people sitting around him. Jesus' word prove who he is. And then point number two, Jesus' sheep know who he is. Jesus gives a reason for why they don't believe that he is God in the flesh. And then he contrasts it with those who do believe. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus says, I've told you who I am. You don't believe it. My works have shown who I am, and you still don't believe it. And then he goes on to say that they did not believe because they were not among his sheep. Jesus contrasts this in the next verse with those who are his sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And so Jesus says, you don't believe because you aren't mine. But those who do believe, those are my sheep. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand the previous story uh, of John chapter 10. Most people I know don't like to be referred to as sheep. Anybody here? Most I mean, sheep are dumb animals. I seen this video. I thought about putting it on the screen. Decided against this. So I'll just tell you about it. It's a sheep, right? They got he's like stuck between. I don't even know what they are, like hay bales or something. Y'all seen this video, right? Uh, and and then they're in there and they pull the sheep out of the hay bales, and he runs and runs and jumps right back into the hay bales, stuck. Like most people I know don't like to be called like a sheep are dumb creatures, and yet Jesus has no problem saying, "Yeah, my people. Uh, these are my sheep." But other people are not my sheep. Look at verse uh, 1 of John chapter 10. Uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, leads them out. When he has brought uh, brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So Jesus begins to teach his disciples, right? In John chapter 10, he begins to teach his disciples and the Pharisees a bit about the difference in types of sheep. He, he contrasts a thief and a robber who enter the sheep by, um, by means of force to the man who enters the sheep by the means of the door. The one who enters by the door, he says, is the true shepherd. He comes in to get his sheep who know his voice and they follow him. But look at verse 6, because, uh, because maybe like you, the people were confused. They, di- they didn't know what, they, what he was saying. Look at verse 6. The figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus here teaches the people that he is the good shepherd. He is the door of the sheep. He teaches that he has come to give life. He also teaches that he knows who are his. And then he lays his life down for those sheep. So what's the point in all this, you might ask? The point is that all the world is currently divided between two groups of sheep. So it's not a question of whether or not we, we are sheep. But whose sheep are we? Whose sheep are we? They're the sheep who are known by the Father and have been given to Jesus, who will be saved, are being saved, have been saved. Then there are the sheep who will be snatched away by the wolf, who is the devil, who will not be saved. So now go back to verse 26. Jesus then talking to these Jewish people who don't understand who he is. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice I know them, and they follow me. What Jesus is saying here is that his sheep know who he is. Friends, do you know who Jesus is? Have you thought about it? Do you know him? Is he your father? Is he your savior? You see, my daughters can be playing in a a playground with a hundred other kids, all yelling and screaming, and it's just ridiculousness. And I could say, Marley, and she knows. That's my dad. I better stop. Better listen. He's calling my name. What does he want? I need to go see what he wants. She doesn't have to say, well, was that my dad or your dad? She knows my voice. Why? Because she's mine. She's my child. I'm her father. She knows my voice. You see, Jesus said, uh, uh, my sheep know who I am. They hear my voice. But he also says that, that I know them. And this is a beautiful thing. Don't miss this. You see, in the same way that my daughter Marley might know my voice when I call her name, Julie and I can be deep in conversation and those hundred kids are running around acting ridiculous on the playground. But if Marley falls and scrapes her knees and begins to cry out, she doesn't even have to say, Father or Dad, because I know it's her. From the way that she whines and cries to the, to the voice, uh, to the sound of her voice, like, I just instinctively know, to where Julie and I usually like look at each other and it's like, yeah, that's Marley. We need to go get her. We need to help her. This is a bit of what it's like when Jesus says, I know them. You see, he knows his sheep. He knows your voice. He knows who you are. But Jesus also says that his sheep follow him. This is one of the discerning phrases that is so integral to the whole passage here. Because earlier I said that the entire world is divided into two camps. Those who know Jesus and those who don't. Those who have, will have life eternal, those who won't. Those who will spend eternity in heaven and those who will spend eternity in hell. And the question that you should be asking yourself is which group am I a part of? Which camp am I in? How do I know which group I'm in? How do I know if, if, I'm, if I'm one of his sheep? And Jesus answers all of these questions with this last phrase. They follow me. Are you following Jesus? To have saving faith, to be saved by the blood of Jesus means then that you follow him. Do you believe in him? Do you have the spirit of God working in you, leading you to repentance, leading you to good works? This doesn't mean perfectly. 
but it does mean that you actually do it. You see, Paul in Romans chapter six argues that we are dead to sin, but alive to Jesus. And that what that means is that we are to continue to put the old man, the old woman in our flesh to death. We should fight sin in our lives. So Christian, brother, sister, unbeliever, are you doing this? Jesus says his sheep follow him. Notice Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. He tells these people straight up, my sheep know who I am and they follow me. Jesus' sheep know who he is. Third, finally, Jesus keeps all who are his. We come to this last point. Uh, Look at verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, in these two verses, Jesus answers for us the question at the beginning of the message. Remember, why did all of you get out of bed this morning to come to church? Why are you believing the gospel? Why have you believed the gospel? Is it just a momentary blip on the the, the timeline of your life? Will you one day wake up and no longer believe the gospel? Will you wake up thinking, I've wasted all that time? You see, according to Jesus, we continue to believe the gospel because he has given us eternal life and no one will snatch us out of his hand. He then links his work of giving eternal life and the ability to hold securely onto the sheep with the work of the Father. He says, my Father has given them to me. No one can snatch them out of his hands. Do you see the picture Jesus is painting here? He's saying that that I am uh, the the good shepherd. Uh, My sheep know who I am and I know them. They follow me. He says, I hold them in my hands securely. No one's gonna snatch them away from me. But then he says, my Father has given them to me. And he says, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's kind of like if, 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 if God was holding you in this hand, the God the Father, and he puts you in the hand of Christ, well, now you have both the hand of Christ and the hand of God the Father holding you secure, steadfast. The Father has given them to me. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. He reinforces the argument that no one can take what is his. And then he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And of course, after this, the Jews take up the stones to kill him because this is blasphemy. This is Jesus saying he's God in the flesh. But Paul uses the same idea. Go to Romans chapter 8. Go to Romans chapter 8. The idea that Jesus keeps all who are his. Uh, Paul will flesh this out in Romans chapter 28 for us. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 28. Uh, Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see Paul's logic? He says, God has foreknown, which means to know beforehand. He's known the people which will be his sheep. He has known beforehand who are his sheep. And then he predestines uh, them, which, which means to determine ahead of time to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, when exactly did Jesus know you? That's the question. When did Jesus foreknow you, predestined? When did the Father determine who are his? Well, Paul answers that question in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He said, even as he chose us, God the Father chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. 
that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You see, he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. So in eternity past, God looked into the future of humanity and determined that Matthew Scott Sheezer, that's me, would become a part of his family. And he decided, I want him in my family. Though he is a sinner, though he's a blasphemer, though his father is the devil, I want him in my family. And so he says, I will send my son, my only son, whom I love, to purchase him to be in my family. Listen, if you believe in Jesus, that's true of you today. If you are one of his, one of his children, this is true of you. Now go back to Romans chapter 8. Those who, uh, look at this chain of events. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, Jesus has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified all of his children. This means that he will not, indeed he cannot lose any of them. Jesus' works prove who he is. Jesus' sheep know who he is, and Jesus keeps all who are his. So are you his? Do you follow him? If so, friends, take heart. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, as you strive in repentance, know that it is God who is working in you to bring about to completion the work that he has started. As you strive in good works, know that it is God who is working in you to bring about the completion of the work he has started. Listen, salvation for all of us is a work of God. He's the first mover. Like like John will say, uh, we love because he first loved us. You see, he's the first mover. He's the initiator in all of this. He's the one who reaches down. When you say, well, pastor, I prayed a prayer one time, that's fine and, that's fine and great because uh, God moved in your heart to move you to repentance. But you might be asking yourself, what about those who seem to have known Jesus, perhaps even been baptized in his name, but now no longer seem to be following after him? You say, pastor, did, did Jesus lose those? Did he forget what sheep were his and lose those ones? The author of the Gospel of John will will later write a letter called 1 John. And in this letter, he says this. He's talking about uh, this exact situation. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. He said, notice what John's saying. He says, "They, they, they were here with us. They were a part of us, but they left. They were not of us. And he goes on, for... If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that that they are all are not of us. So what John says is of people who do not continue to follow Jesus is that they never truly believed to begin with. So as we end this sermon series, how do you know if the kind of faith you have now is the kind of faith that saves? You know by answering the question, are you currently following Jesus? Are you currently following Jesus? Are you currently repenting? Are you currently believing the gospel in this moment, here and now? It's not about, well, one time I prayed a prayer, Pastor, therefore me and and the Lord, we good. No, 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 that's that's ridiculous. Like, that's witchcraft. Like, that's just saying an incantation and hoping some uh, voodoo, holy magic, holy ghost gets sprinkled on you. No, no, no. Are you right now believing the gospel? 
here, now, in this very moment. Friends, you will know you are saved if you find uh, that right now you believe the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has saved you from your sins, that you could not clean yourself up enough before a holy God, but that he did it for you. We're not saved by our own strength. But if we are saved, we are saved because of what he has done. And we will continue in the faith, not because of our own strength, because of what he is currently doing in us. And this truth, this, this truth has caused joy to well up in my heart more than any other truth. Because there's been times that I myself have been tempted not to believe the gospel. There have been times I've looked at the own sin in my life and thought, do I even love him? Struggles in my own heart of pride and sinfulness, do I even know him? Or am I like these people who are confused and one day walk away? If we are to see our Savior face to face and hear the words, well done, then we must continue in the grace that he has given us. You see, every day when we wake up believing the gospel, it is because of the grace he has given us. Like you didn't muster it up in yourself, right? Grace through faith, that is a gift he has given us, not uh, of works, lest any man should boast. He has given us every night when we go to bed, trusting in a sovereign God who watches over us and keeps us, and we believe that in faith, it is because of the grace he has given us. Friends, trust in Jesus. Trust in this Jesus, a good, loving uh, Savior who calls to you, come, believe these words, believe in his words and in his actions, hear his voice calling out to you today. Repent of your sins and follow him. Father God, we come before you. Lord, as we, we end this series of saving faith and understanding uh, how, how, how in the world do we know whether we love you. Lord, you've called us to repent. You've called us into good works, into walking out the faith we say we believe. Father, how do we know in our hearts that we truly believe the gospel? As John has told us here, Lord, we will know your voice. We love you. We will follow you. So right now, Lord, I pray that we would examine our lives and to see any area where we are not following you. Find any area in our hearts. I pray that even right now you will bring to mind pockets of resistance in our own hearts to the submission of Christ as Lord, such that we might repent and continue in the faith. Father, I pray that you would love us and keep us. Lord, your word says that you will complete this work that you've began in us. Father, for those who are far from you this morning, under the sound of my voice, I pray that right now you'd be calling to their hearts, calling them into the sheepfold. Lord, you know who are yours. I pray that you would call them to you they may, they may repent and have life everlasting. Send Jesus, beautiful and mighty name we pray. Amen. Brother Philip.